from across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Your idea of what I'm about to talk about this evening. So I found this slide, or this, uh, this snippet, and I think that was when I first saw the Red Arrows, May 1982, and I think it was actually that date, the 15th of May, where I thought, that is what I want to do, that is what I want to be. And from then I worked on. I, I, I went to school and uh, strived to become a Royal Air Force pilot. So I joined the, the Air Cadets, and it's great to see some people from my old squadron, Biggin Hill Squadron. I grew up in Biggin Hill and joined the squadron there, and that's where I saw them flying every year at the uh, Biggin Hill International Air Fair. I then left school uh, after my A-levels and applied to join the Royal Air Force and started my initial officer training at RAF Cranwell. From then I started my flying training and was selected to fly fast jets, which is what I always wanted to do. And I went to fly the Firefly, before then the Tucano. I then got my wings on the Hawk at RAF Valley, and then I was selected to become a, a flying instructor. So what's known as a creamy instructor, so a first tourist flying instructor on the Tucano, the, the, the aircraft top right there. I was, my first tour was teaching on that three wonderful years at the age of 22, teaching students who had been to university and were then the same age as me, so some lifelong friends having taught them to fly. I moved on to, to Canada, actually, and went and trained on, on the new version of the Hawk, the NATO Flying Training Centre, and then I was posted to the Tornado F3 as an air defence pilot. I didn't spend a lot of time on the Tornado because my lifelong dream was to join the Royal Air Force aerobatic team. So in 2007, I applied purely just to get my name known. I had no intention of actually getting in in 2007, but uh, lo and behold, I was successful, and I was selected for the 2008 display team, which, as you heard, I was flew as Red 3, a brilliant year, and then... Very fortunate to have been selected to fly as part of the Synchro pair. Three-year normal tour of duty for a Red Arrows pilot. I got to the end of that, then I moved on. Every pilot's nightmare, I was uh, sent to a ground job. I got promoted to squadron leader and sent to a ground job, working in the UK military flying training system. But while I was doing that job, I got to fly the, the Grob Tutor, which is the aircraft bottom left on that slide, flying air experience flights with air cadets. So having had the opportunity when I was in the cadets, I then got the opportunity to take cadets flying. And... I'll show you some slides later. I've done some pretty cool stuff with the Red Arrows, but genuinely, some of the most rewarding flying I've done has been in that little white aircraft there, the look on a cadet's face when you take them flying for the first time. So a brilliant year spent flying the Tutor with, with cadets in the other seat. There was a, a tragic year in 2011, and unfortunately, uh, we lost two pilots, Flight Lieutenant John Egan, Flight Lieutenant Sean Cunningham, and I was asked to come back to the team to fill the slot of supervisor. So Red 10... These are the roles of Red 10, uh, a brilliant job as a pilot. Most people would think, well, you don't get to do the displays as a Red Arrows pilot, as, a, as Red 10, you're not doing the Red Arrows displays. But I had so many different roles that no day was the same as, as the, the previous. It was a really, really interesting job. I was the supervisor. With my previous time in the team, I was a mentor to the new pilots. If Red 1 was sick, I was qualified to go and then lead the formation during practices. I did all of the site surveys, especially after the Shoreham accident. I was very involved with, with making sure that the sites were safe for the Red Arrows to display. If jets came out of maintenance, I was taking them up to do the, the post-maintenance air tests on them, the engineering tests. Uh, the best job in the world, I was the photo chase pilot, so I got to fly around the formation capturing all those air-to-air images that you see and uh, had the, the best view of the Red Arrows display you're ever going to get. And also, I'd, I was the display season coordinator, deciding how the team was going to get from A to B and making sure the team was in the right place at the right time. So that was my actual roles, but to the rest of the Red Arrows, I was just the commentator. So I was the guy... <laughs> On the ground at every display, we, the Red Arrows couldn't display unless there was somebody on the ground to monitor safety. 
So I was in the radio there, I was in constant, constant contact with the team, talking to Red One, letting them know about anything untoward that might affect their display. So had to be on the ground, and while I was there, I might as well be useful and talk to the crowd. So um, a brilliant job, very varied, and uh, something that, as a pilot, actually I love doing all the flying side of it, but then also as a, in terms of the engagement side, being on the ground and talking to you know, sometimes up to half a million people was, was an incredible experience. At the end of 2017, I was then sent, as you heard, to Cranwell again, so full circle, back to Cranwell as the air safety manager for the Central Flying School. And I worked with the examination wing there, where I was also a, a Hawk instructor. I stayed current flying the Hawk, and I was an examiner and uh, instructor on the Hawk. Tragic accident, uh, in fact, a year ago tomorrow, uh, when we had, there was a jet crashed at RF Valley. Unfortunately, uh, Corporal John Bayliss was in the backseat of the jet, was killed. The pilot was in the, in the front, ejected, but was injured, and uh, they needed a, a replacement pilot. So they asked me to come back and be Red 3 again, and I joined the team April 2018 and got to fly in the Red 3 slot, having, and then finished in October. So that's a quick rundown of what, where I've been. Uh, now I'll talk a bit more about the team. So these are the missions of the Royal Air Force Aerobatic Team. First and foremost, it's to showcase the excellence of the Royal Air Force. They belong to the Royal Air Force. All along the side of the aircraft is, in massive letters, Royal Air Force. That only actually arrived in 2008. Before then, there was a tiny little Royal Air Force in blue along the front of the aircraft. And people used to ask if Coca-Cola owned the team. And this is enough's enough. Let's tell them who we really belong to. So Royal Air Force splattered along the side of the jets. Represented the United Kingdom. Three years ago, new tail fin. Very much like British Airways, it, we are a British asset. The team is very much British and representing the United Kingdom. Supporting British industry, more of that in a minute. Inspiring the next generation. I'm stood here today having done what I've done because I was inspired by watching the Red Arrows, and that's, that carries on today. That just rings true as, we continue, as the team continues to do what they do and strive to demonstrate the very best of British. That's done through a medium of air displays. I'm sure most people have either seen an online or a live display. Fly pasts. Ground engagement and online engagement. Of course, online media, social media is now becoming a, a really big deal, and that's uh, the team's trying to move towards engaging with, with uh, all ages through the online mediums. That's done through instilling, hopefully, a little bit of national pride on very special days like Her Majesty's birthday and Troop in the Colour, uh, and also for, for major events that I'll come to later on. Supporting British industry has changed very slightly in the last few years. So it used to be that the team would support British Aerospace, BAE Systems, and Rolls-Royce, so there's British aviation firms. But it's very much swung towards what's called the Great Campaign. So the Foreign and Commonwealth Office and the Department for International Trade have this Great Campaign. The logo's up there, top left. And the team are very heavily involved with this around the world. So I've put some examples up here. So Brompton Bikes, British brand are trying to break into the Asian market, but they're finding it very difficult to, to make sales out in China and Hong Kong. So we went out there to Hong Kong as part of a tour, sat on a Brompton bike in Hong Kong, and it ended up in the paper, and sales went through the roof. So it's not just about having aeroplanes, it's using the team as a hook to get people interested, and, oh, bright red suits, what does that mean? Oh, Brompton bikes, and then sales of Brompton bikes went up. Likewise, in Singapore with Aston Martins, same thing. So using the Red Arrows as a hook or an introduction to something completely irrelevant to the aviation industry, and it's, uh, it's proving very popular. Uh, for me, the most important role is inspiration. So uh, the left-hand picture there, that was me in 1982, albeit I probably had less hair even then. And, but at the top, look at the banner, recruiting now, and that, that just says it all to me. That one picture captures everything that the team inspires in terms of inspiring the next generation. The right-hand picture... You look at the picture initially and think, well, that's similar. He's inspiring the young kid. But it's not. It's all about this lady here. Now, she's uh, 
an older lady, but she's waving at the jets. She's inspired as well. She's inspiring across the ages. So that's uh, very important, and the team do really enjoy that aspect. Right, I'm going to zip through this. A little bit of history of the team. So back in the, the 50s and 60s, the Royal Air Force was full of jets and aeroplanes and squadrons, and each squadron pretty much had its own display, whether it be a singleton or a formation team. Uh, some examples, these are the Yellow Jacks. They were the Nats at Tariq Valley. The famous Black Arrows, who flew the Hawker Hunter, Treble One Squadron. And the Red Pelicans, who were a central flying school unit. So they were spending a lot of time working up for these displays and, and showboating, as we call it, um, and not co- concentrating on their frontline tasks. So the Air Ministry said, OK, enough's enough. Let's have a, a full-time established aerobatic team. So very popular teams, as were those two examples I've just given you. So the Red Pelicans belong, belong to the Central Flying School. The Black Arrows were very famous around the world and very popular. And the, uh, the, the Yellow Jacks with their gnats were... Uh, they were flying the aircraft that was the advanced jet trainer and a simple aircraft, if you like, of the day. So they put all three together, and then in 1964, the Red Arrows were born, belonging to the Central Flying School, initially with instructors from the Central Flying School, and uh, had a team of seven aircraft flying Red Nats. I've been very fortunate to have met a couple of the, the founding members of the team. There they are there. And they, as I say, started with seven aircraft, and then eventually, in 1968, the Diamond Nine was born. Two extra aircraft were added on, and the Diamond Nine was born. So, since 1965, that first display season, the team have flown now 4,965 displays in 57 countries. So, they've got around, and it's been it's been great to see that that develop. And in, in my time in the team, I think we've added an extra. I think it was 51 when I joined. So, another six countries where the team have performed for the first time in those 54 display seasons. Right. You, when you're at an air show, you see those nine aircraft putting out red, white, and blue smoke. But those nine aircraft wouldn't be there if it wasn't for the entire team. So the team is actually made up of 130 people. 11 pilots, so wearing red suits, nine display pilots, red 10, the supervisor, and red 11 is the officer commanding, the wing commander who oversees the entire unit. Then there are 119 119 support personnel. Now, these are uh, boys and girls from across the Royal Air Force, a spectrum of trades. I'll show you a slide in a minute. And they are the hard-working members of the team. So they really are making sure that their task is completed to ensure the bigger task of getting those nine jets in front of the public on time it, and with the right coloured smoke, with the right amount of fuel, etc., etc., all done successfully. And it's all because of this, really. This is the crest that everyone on the team wears on their arm. Obviously, it's a Royal Air Force unit. It has the Queen's crown. It has those nine jets, which is really representing what the, the, the team is all about from what people see. But it's the word at the bottom, eclat, which is, means about brilliance in display. It means excellence in display or, or just sort of excellence. And that's what everyone is striving to do. Make sure that they put on the perfect display, whether it be the pilots actually performing or the guy who fixed the, the, the last nut on the hydraulic ram that closes or opens the door, the, the um, undercarriage doors. Everyone is doing what they need to do to put on that perfect display. Uh, right, said so the pilots wear red suits. The nine display pilots, that's last year's team. And I'll talk a little bit more about those in a minute. And then I've mentioned the support staff who demonstrate a cross-section of the trades. These are some of them from the engineering side. They're also administrators, uh, drivers, suppliers. Um, But we we represent the whole force. So the Royal Air Force is now talking about whole force concept, not just regular personnel, reservists, 
contractors, civil servants, and the Red Arrows are no different. There are full-time reservists that operate in the team. There are contractors who, supply, who work in the supply network. There are civil servants who work in the public relations department. So it's a really good example of this whole force concept that the Royal Air Force is now working towards. Right, selection to be a pilot has a number of criteria. So if you want to be a pilot, you apply to join, but before you do, you have to have 1,500 hours of fast jet flying. You have to have completed at least one frontline operational tour, be that on Tornado, Typhoon, Lightning, Harrier, Jaguar, and you have to be assessed as above average. You also have to be the rank of flight lieutenant, so a junior officer. Um, Actually, there's a very small window to apply because once you've ticked all those other boxes, the above average 1,500 hours frontline tour, you're actually on the cusp of promotion because those credentials put you in the bracket to get promoted. So you then can't apply once you're promoted. So a very small window of opportunity to apply to join the team. It's completely voluntary. So you apply through a very archaic process or by sending a signal. That's the first part of the test is how do you send a signal? We've got emails now, right? But no, we have to send a signal. Um, and we get around 30 to 35 applicants every year. The, the Royal Air Force is shrinking, and the number of eligible and available people is also shrinking. So that number has stayed pretty steady, so we've been very fortunate to have a good pool of people to choose from. Those 30 applicants in this example each send their entire flying record, from day one of flying training, flying an elementary flying training aircraft, all the way up to their latest frontline report. They send Their entire report is read by Red One. He will then praise it, everyone, and then present them to the team individually, without saying their names, so that it's uh, unbiased, in case you know the chat. And then the team, are very fortunate, gets a down-select nine who then go through to the shortlist. So the, the job interview is a week long, where the shortlistees, nine of them, will come to the Mediterranean training camp and spend a week with the team and go through a number of enduring uh, uh, processes. So the flying tests, where they'll fly in a Hawk, which they probably haven't flown for a long time, if at all. Uh, they will fly formation aerobatics, which they won't have done in the past. They'll go through a very difficult interview with lots of searching questions. Social engagement is very important. You want to actually get to know somebody and whether they're they're fit for the team is going to be right. So a lot of the time is spent just getting to know these guys and making sure that they are going to be the right person for the team. It's all about peer assessment and the voting is done by the the, the actual pilots themselves. One of the only units in the military that has the luxury of being self-selecting. So the the 11 pilots on the Red Arrows get to choose who joins the Red Arrows and that's um, uh, very... It's necessary in this type of environment where if you're spending 16 hours a day together in the summer, you've just quite frankly got to get on. And you're flying only a couple of metres away from somebody. You've got to trust them. You've got to have the right person next to you. So it's a very important part of the process is having this self-selecting ability. Those successful guys will come from their frontline aircraft. They'll join the team in around about September, October, and then start working up once the display season finishes. So flying three times a day, five, five days a week, and they start with small formations. So I said before, they haven't flown necessarily formation aerobatics before, so they start with either two or three aircraft formations, and as they get better and better at it, then aircraft get added on. And it's just around this time of year that uh, the team will fly the first nine ship, and it's by no means a polished performance and ready for display to the public, so they need to put the polish on it, and they do that by heading off to the Mediterranean where they get much better weather, and they can really focus on getting the absolute intricacies of the display right and getting it... Um, as good as they want it to be for the British public. Each sortie might only fly for half an hour, but the process that surrounds it, so the brief might be a 45-minute brief, and by the time you've got your kit on, started the jet up, taken off, flown for half an hour, landed, taxied in, kit off, debriefed, the whole thing's around about two and a half to three hours. So it's, it's quite a, an important process. The debrief is where the, the real crux happens, because if you can't take points forward and learn what you did wrong in the last one, then 
there's no point in doing what you've done. So the debrief is actually arguably the longest part of that process. So sometimes an hour, hour and a quarter actually debriefing a, a 20 minute display. A little bit about the aircraft. Um, it, obviously, it's quite an old aeroplane. It first flew in August 1974, and it was designed as an advanced jet and weapons trainer. But it's perfect for what the Red Arrows use it for because it's very simple. It's very reliable, and it does what you tell it to do. It can fly at 620 miles an hour. It is supersonic, so by that you can go to Mach 1.2, so 1.2 times the speed of sound. But to do that, you have to climb up to 48,000 feet and then roll inverted, pull to 90 degrees nose down at full power, and head towards the sea, um, and it can get quite alarming. Because when, you, when you're learning to fly these aeroplanes back in the day, it was, it was actually uh, at night, the night flying portion of the course, you had to just fly to get night hours, so there wasn't a lot to do at night, so you invariably went supersonic at night. So you're now pointing at the sea at Mach 1.2, and all you've got to tell you is your altimeter, how high you are, but unfortunately, because you're going down so quickly... One of them froze because it overheated. So it, not really a nice environment to be in. But anyway, it can go supersonic, but only if you put it into, those, uh, into that regime. You can fly for about 1,000 miles um, on a tank of gas. No air to air refueling, so you have to land and, and refuel. I'll talk more about that later on. Uh, single Rolls-Royce engine. It's not an overly powered aeroplane. It weighs about 5.5 tons, so 5,500 kilograms with only 5,200 pounds of thrust. But for a, a training aircraft and for a display aircraft, it is absolutely perfect. There are no computers in the jets that we fly, and I'll talk more about that in a second. <clears throat> so the T1 was designed as an, a, a, weapons, a jet, advanced jet trainer and weapons trainer, but there are some changes that the Red Arrows made back in 1979 when the jet replaced the NAT. Uh, first one being the engine. It has a, there's a slight difference to the fuel control unit. I won't bore you with the technicalities, but it means that you've just got a faster response time in the, the, the thrust performance. You can get higher thrust quicker than the normal jet. But the biggest difference is, of course, the smoke. So under the aircraft there, you can see, you can see the red dot. There's a, what's a modified gun pod. So where it was designed as a weapons trainer, there was a gun fitted. All the, the engineers did was put some tanks, some diesel tanks in there, strapped to the bottom of the aeroplane, a bit of tubing, and then it gets squirted out in the engine exhaust, which burns at around 400 degrees. So pure diesel smoke for, sorry, pure diesel fuel for the white smoke, and then they just mix a, an environmentally friendly red and blue dye to the diesel to... Uh, to get the very patriotic colours. Five minutes of white smoke, one minute of red, one minute of blue. And the display is actually choreographed so that you, it uses the exact amount of smoke, which is why sometimes you might see at some displays one jet stops smoking. It's because, actually, it probably hasn't got quite the right amount of diesel or diesel and dye mix in that smoke canister. Incidentally, the smoke was designed, it's used for flight safety. Yes, it looks pretty, it's patriotic, but the idea was is when you've got nine aeroplanes scattered all around the place... It's very difficult to see a hawk that's two or three miles away. But if you put smoke out, at the start of that smoke tries where the jet will be. So it's there to aid visual acuity. And then it was just taken on a step and used for, uh, for adding some red, white, and blue to the, to the display. Right, that is the Hawk T1 cockpit of a Red Arrows aircraft. So you're looking now into the front cockpit from above the front cockpit ejection seat. And you can see there that it's... Uh, well, it is 1970s technology. It was designed to teach the early versions of the Tornado, but more actually before then even the Phantoms, the Buccaneers, the Lightnings. So um, fairly basic technology. I lied about the no computers. We do have this thing, which is essentially a TomTom. -tom. If those of you who are familiar with the Game Boy, remember that awful green and black screen on a Game Boy? That, that is better than this. Um, so it shows coastlines and airfields, which is really useful. Um, but what it does do is you can actually plan turning points in it 
and it can give you a time on target. So when you've got to be somewhere to the second for Her Majesty, this, this really helps. Uh, right, what I want to show you in this cockpit, so you're looking down above the front, uh, the front ejection seat, you've got the control column here, so your right hand for up, down, left, right, two rudder pedals to yaw the aircraft left and right. You've got your throttle with your left hand here, uh, on which we control the air brake. And then the rest are just uh, obviously dials and instruments to look at engine performance and fuel, radios, some avionics down here. So a very basic cockpit, very simple. This shows how we put the smoke on. So designed as a weapons trainer, as I keep saying. Um, actually on the cockpit, on the, the control column there, where your thumb sits naturally, this button here, that uh, was in the day, that's how you'd start the, the cine... The, film camera when you were dogfighting, when you're training to do dogfighting, that's how you'd start the camera. That does white smoke. This button here is if you were going to drop bombs, you'd press that button to drop a bomb, that's now red smoke. And then around the front, so this, this finger here, you can't actually see it in this picture, but around about there, is um, because it's a training aircraft and you're trying to teach a student something, you're trying to tell him something, quite often you get air traffic giving a lot of that, so the instructor can press that button to make air traffic go quiet. And a uh, very useful mute button. Unfortunately, in the Renaris aircraft, it's now blue smoke. So you can't, you can't zip air traffic up. Um, there you go. That's, that's how it's done. You press the button. One of these lights comes on, uh, red, white, and blue. One on either side, depending on what side of the formation you're at and looking at naturally. And that will say that the, the smoke cock is open. doesn't necessarily mean the smoke is on because you've got no idea how much smoke you've got left. As I say, it's all done on timing and choreographing the display. So that is the Hawk T1, that 1970s technology. It stopped being used as an advanced trainer uh, fairly recently. It might be used again this year, uh, but it was replaced by the Hawk T2, so the, the much newer version of the Hawk. And you can see now where there were no computers in this one, actually this one is all screens and head-up displays and digital equipment. And that is much more relevant now to our fourth and fifth generation student pilots coming through who are going to go and fly the likes of the Typhoon on the left of the screen and the F-35 on the right. In fact, if I flick back, picture, that's the Typhoon cockpit, the screen layout, the head-up display, head display, sorry, and then go back to the Hawk. The Hawk was designed around the Typhoon cockpit, so it's a much easier step for a student pilot to go from the Hawk, which is a lot cheaper to operate, to the Typhoon than it is um, from the T1. So that's why we have the new Hawk. And it's a, a very, very swept-up aeroplane. It's got lots of capability, but a lot of it would be wasted if it was going to be a Red Arrows aircraft because all of those computers aren't in use when you're looking out the window at another aeroplane. So you just wouldn't use them. So almost a waste of technology for the Red Arrows use. Right, a little bit about how formation flying is done. So all military pilots will learn how to fly in formation. The idea of formation is that if you're going to get lots of aircraft off the ground and back again, you could be much more efficient getting those large numbers of aircraft airborne and back by going in formation. For a start, only one person has to speak to air traffic control. Sorry if there are any air traffic controllers in the room. I'm, I do love you all. Um, but if, if you've got to get lots of aircraft up, rather than four aircraft speaking to them individually, the leader can speak and you can just follow. So that's why military pilots learn how to fly formation. So all pilots will do that, Army, Royal Navy and Royal Air Force. Everyone will learn it during the elementary flying stages. The Red Arrows just take it up a gear by putting nine jets together and going upside down. So it's a, it's a rudimentary skill that everyone learns, but actually it's just advanced when it comes to the Red Arrows. Quite simply, to fly in formation, the, this is Red 2, this is Red 1. Red 2's pilot will line up various parts of the lead aircraft. In this picture, he's lining up this wing fence with the front of the intake, and that gives him a nice diagonal line. Now, of course, if his eyes were good enough, he could be two miles away and still have those points in line on that diagonal line. So he needs to triangulate his position, and he'll have a rear reference, in this case, look along the trailing edge of the tailplane. 
and that puts him in exactly the right position, and everyone's happy. You're in the right place, and you fly around at that point, which is fine when there are only two aircraft, because if the leader moves, those references change, you put your aircraft back onto the references, you're back in the right place. If you've then got a big formation where you've got five aircraft on the wing, that doesn't work, because if leader goes, then two goes, there's going to be a ripple all the way down the wing. So what will happen is, red one will say, coming left now, with a really set cadence in his voice, and it's very metronomic, coming left now, on the nut of now is where red one puts his input in, but the guys on the outside will have to go much earlier, they have to anticipate it by quite a large margin, so it might even be on the nut of left, they've already put their input in, to keep that whole wing flying as one, and that's what I mean by flying by ear as well as by eye, they're looking at the references, but they're listening, and it's very important, that's a skill that they won't have ever learnt, and it's actually arguably the hardest thing to teach a new Red Arrows pilot, is how to fly by ear, not by eye. The other thing to mention is that here's, this is the left-hand side of the formation, red 1, red 3, red 5, red 9. Uh, red 3's got those same references, so he's lining up very two very clear places. Um, red 5 is ignoring red 3, and red 9 is ignoring red 5 and red 3. They're all looking at various points on the lead aircraft. And it might only be just a fleeting part of the, tail, of the tip of the tail that red 9 can see. It might only be a tiny part, but they just have to ignore what's happening at the aircraft next to them. Bear in mind, it's only six feet, two metres away. They just don't look at them. They just look at the leader and just trust that that guy's going to be in the right place. So all done by listening and by trusting. And it's uh, how the Red Arrows do it compared to other formation pilots. Simplest way to talk about how the team is numbered is by showing the trademark Diamond 9 shape. So you've got Reds 1 to 5 at the front. They're known as Enid, after Enid Blyton's famous five. Quite simply, in, in the Diamond 9 shape, all those shapes where you've got three aircraft in the stem, in, in the middle, if you like, that's always Reds 1, 6, and 7 and then even numbers on the right, odd numbers on the left. That uh, makes things nice and simple for us. The back four, red six, seven, eight, and nine, are known as JIPO and have been since 1968 when they first started flying nine-ship formations. And then within JIPO are red six and seven who make up the synchro pair. Right, so the actual display itself, I've talked about those references. So each shape for each pilot has a different reference. So lots of references to know, and then you've got to keep those references. So you need to move your hands and feet, for those mechanical controls to move and put the aircraft in the right place to stay on the references. It's all about smooth inputs. If you make a big jerky input, then, of course, I've said the guy isn't looking next to you, but out of his periphery, he's going to see a big movement and it's going to alarm him, and he's going to make a big movement, and then that might just ripple down the wing. So it's got to be smooth, and you've got to make corrections very small, very tiny. Now, to the, to the untrained eye, a lot of the errors won't even be noticeable, but I've talked about that debrief, debriefing process that's the important part. So that will get every display practice and, and display will get videoed, and that video is then played back. Sometimes in slow motion, the ruler comes out and gets measured. And if you're, you know, a couple of couple of inches here or there, then it's debriefed, and the next time you can put it right. So while the untrained eye won't notice, the team is striving for the perfect display, and you can only do that by learning and carrying on from from your previous. Those errors are, well, self-explanatory mostly. If you're here, you're wide. If you're here, you're long short, tight, etc. Um, you could be a combination of the two. So if you're wide and long, you're down it. You're down that diagonal reference. That's called down it. If you hear Red Arrow's debrief, most people say that down it. Um, and then you've got depth, shallow, deep. But actually the important one, talking about that flying by ear, not by eye, is about timing. So coming left now, if you get this along the wing, then they've not gone at the right time. So they're either behind it or ahead of it. So there are four dimensions to fly in the display. During the display... You're going to be flying around maximum of around 4 to 4.5G four four in formation, 
And then when the team splits up and perform the more dynamic manoeuvring, then it's up to 8G. The aircraft can pull up to eight times the force of gravity. So it's, it's quite punishing on the body, but it's, um, it's also a lot of fun. Right, speeds, the aircraft during the display, normally around about 380 knots. The display itself is around 20 minutes. Um, th- there's, on my second year in the team, the display was 24 minutes. And in, when I came back as Red 10 in 2012, the, t- the display was about 16 minutes. And there's a really happy medium. What you want is, by the, by the end of the display, you want people to want to see it again. You don't want them to think, oh, come on, this has been going on forever. Can we just get on with it now? So around about 19, 20 minutes, we think, is about the right perfect time for a display. It, it means when it finishes, people want to see it again. They want to see more. Whereas if it's too long, start looking at their watches, go and buy their ice cream. And if it's too short, they're just uh, complaining they're not getting value for money. <clears throat> So, around about 20 minutes, but as I said before, each flight actually could be uh, anywhere between half an hour and an hour, depending on where you've launched from, where the display site is, etc. The fabulous British summer weather means there are three different types of show. They are the full show, where you can do looping manoeuvres, needs quite a high cloud base. The rolling display, where the the formation can do barrel rolls. And then the flat display, if it's fairly low cloud, where... um, it won't be any formation aerobatics. We do individual aerobatics, but not formation aerobatics. Below with the cloud is around about 1,500 feet. The first half of the show is all nine aircraft together making different shapes, and then the second half is when we split into those sections of Enid, Gippo, and Synchro and uh, carry out some more dynamic manoeuvres. So the team prides themselves in always something happening in front of the crowd at any given time. So in a 20-minute display, the, the crowd is always seeing something. So if Enid are on show... As soon as that finishes, no more than around five or six seconds later, Jippo are back to put on their next manoeuvre, and it just keeps it flowing. And that's a, a real... It's quite a challenge, because certainly when the, when the weather or the wind is, is changing the pattern of the display, it's quite difficult, so there's normally some, some quick mental arithmetic to, to take place and to keep everything in front of the camera and the crowd. Uh, there are some examples of the big shapes. So I've talked about flying those formation references and that the new pilots in the team generally start in the sort of two, three, four or five positions where they're much closer to the leader and they've got a very good view of the leader and a very stable platform. But there are some shapes, Swan's a good example here, where normally Red 3 is up on the wing here, he's around six feet away from, from Red 1. But in this shape, he's actually been Red 7, where, remember I said his references are on Red 1, so he's looking forward here, probably about 100 feet away. He's looking at Red 1, lining up different parts of Red 1's aircraft, which means that the slightest error in his formation references equates to a much bigger error in his actual position in the formation. So he's looking at Red 1, but has to make sure he's in the right place. And that's quite a challenging position for the new pilots. Some of the second half manoeuvres for Enid. And Enid sometimes joined by Reds 8 and 9, if you see seven aircraft performing a manoeuvre. The more experienced members of the team, so red six, seven, eight, and nine, are normally in their second or third year in the team, and they put on the more uh, dynamic manoeuvring. The mirror roll, that, if you can see it in the picture, that aircraft's actually upside down, so he's performing an inverted barrel roll, so that's minus two and a half, minus three G. So um, where in positive G, everything goes from your brain to your feet, because that's where gravity works. When you're actually upside down and pushing negative G, it all goes to your face and it's very uncomfortable. You can actually fight positive G by tensing your muscles, but negative G you can't, because there's no way of stopping that blood from going to your brain. So it's just an uncomfortable feeling. Um, talk, while we're talking about G, um, we wear special trousers in the cockpit, so we zip trousers on that then plug into the ejection seat, and then if we pull more than 2G, so to turn the aircraft, because it's, it's got a swept wing, and it's quite high performance, to turn the aircraft, we have to pull G. So you have to go above 2G to turn, 
Once that happens, air gets pumped into these trousers, they inflate around your legs, and that then makes you tense your leg muscles, you constrict the capillaries in your leg muscles, and then that stops the blood going from your brain to your feet, keeps it up in your vital organs, so hopefully you won't pass out. Uh, within Jippo, I talked about synchro. Now, the synchro pilots are chosen from their first year in the team, the synchro leader who is taking over. So Red 7 this year will choose his Red 7 for next year. He'll become Red 6. So you, when you're in synchro, you end up for two years of synchro. Synchro wingman, where you learn the ropes, and then your synchro leader. And it's, again, self-selecting. You get to choose who your synchro wingman is going to be. Of course, there's an extra level of trust involved when you're pointing two aircraft towards each other as well. Uh, that's what it looks like in the cockpit for uh, a synchro pair manoeuvre. Right. The display season itself, normal domestic season will last from May to October, depending on the tasking required. The team don't really get to decide where they display. The RAF events team decide. Or they get a number of bids in for displays. They then work out where the engagement priorities are, and then the team will look at the art of the possible, where they can display, and then just try and hit as many as possible. Normally, between 75 and 90 public displays in the UK in the summer. Uh, UK and Europe for a domestic season. And we can fly up to three displays a day. Now, you compare it to some of the other European teams, the French and Italians, their entire season, they might fly 45, 50 displays. And we had, last year in August, we had 31 displays. So it's, um, we try and get as much out of a season as we can. All that effort goes into training throughout the winter for five months. We might as well try and display as many times as we can to, uh, to get the value for money. <clears throat> Uh, I talked about Red 10 being a pilot's dream. This is uh, what a typical day when I was Red 10, where I had a support helicopter provided by Central Flying School Helicopters. That is uh, a squirrel in these pictures. It's now moved on to the new Juno, the EC-135. But I would take off from one base in my jet, which would be the spare aircraft for the team, so we'd always take 10 aircraft, land at another airbase where there'd be a helicopter waiting. I'd then jump in the helicopter, fly to the beach to then go and supervise and commentate for the display, back in the helicopter, back to my jet, fly my jet from there to another place where there'd be another helicopter waiting, then fly the helicopter to another beach to do a, a commentary, just supervision, and then back to the aircraft, jump in the jet, and then fly back to another place pre-positioning for the next day. So, you know, a real pilot stream for this job. To get that number of flights in a day really was, uh, was mind-blowing and fantastic. Uh, you might see in, online, in the press, you might see a lot of formations, mixed formations. The, the reason behind these is, again, it's that hook. I talked about the hook for Brompton bikes. Well, this is a hook for capability. So we've just launched the F-35 Lightning. It's just uh, come onto the Air Force's books. So it came to React. This was two years ago. In fact, three years ago, 2017. Um, so why not, why not get it on the front pages of all the, the aviation journals by flying in formation with the, with the Red Arrows? So likewise, if there's a story to tell, in 2015 it was the 75th anniversary of the Battle of Britain, so why not fly in formation with the Hurricanes and Spitfires of the Battle of Britain Memorial Flight? So that's why we fly mixed formations. Also supporting industry. So at the Farnborough Air Show, we fly with, the, with Airbus at the Red Bull Air Race. So this is the, a Brit coming into the Red Bull Air Race where we got to fly with him. And there's another picture of the A400, so... And announcing or highlighting a new capability for the Royal Air Force. Right. I think I've got around 10 minutes left. So I'll cancel through. So I'm just going to talk now about 10 years, my highlights over the 10 years uh, that I spent with the team. So this was 2007. I talked about that shortlist where you get to go away and spend a week with the team. So this is uh, my shortlist. I was on Treble 1 Squadron at the time, flying the Tornado, and I think it was... Uh, Pretty unheard of, but there were three guys from my squadron. So 
uh, this guy, myself, and Sam. We're all three of us were from Treble One Squadron, so there's a little bit of inter-rivalry there as well. Who wants to perform the best to actually get this job? Um, and then, unfortunately, those guys didn't get in when, when I did, so it was uh, pretty difficult that day when you found out. But I can still remember the day of being told of getting in the team and, and just didn't believe them for a start. But uh, that was on a Friday. You can imagine how, how good that evening was. And then... <laughs> Uh, but then I had to be up at four o'clock the next morning to travel from Scotland to Bryce Norton to go on an exercise. So it was a pretty uncomfortable coach journey. Um, so my first year, 2008. So this was the 90th anniversary of the Royal Air Force. And so now, before we actually got our public display authority, so at the end of that uh, Mediterranean exercise, where up until then we were wearing green suits like every other Royal Air Force pilot, when a senior officer comes and deems the display is suitable and safe then he will award public display authority. And that's when you can change then into a red flying suit and you're cleared to be perform in front of the public. In 2008, it was slightly different because the 90th anniversary of the Royal Air Force was on the 1st of April, which is before public display authority, but we got special permission to fly over London to celebrate the anniversary. And there we are in formation with four typhoons. <clears throat> so that was the, my first year. My first public appearance, if you like, was uh, flying for the 90th anniversary. And then we embarked on quite a mammoth tour. So taking a single-engine, nearly 40-year-old aeroplane across the Atlantic uh, to go and display as far south as uh, Virginia. Yeah, Virginia, where we went down to um, Hampton. But, um, I mean, incredible experience. You've got one engine that, you know, if, that, if, that, if you get a fire caption, you've got a minute before, to do something about it. If that caption is still on after a minute, you've got to eject. Now, where sea temperatures are pretty low and there aren't a lot of safety vessels to see you between here and between here and here, uh, you know, it's quite, you, it keeps you on your toes, to say the least. So you're, you're just constantly monitoring your instruments to make sure the engine is, doing, is behaving. But from that, there were some absolutely incredible, these are in, uh, totally engraved on my brain, these images. That's over Greenland with some of the glaciers, which were incredible. I'll just go back. We landed at a little place, some of you may have heard of it, down on the southern tip of Greenland here, called Narsasuak. Now, this is a, it's a, a, an airfield in the middle of a, an iceberg field, at the end of an iceberg field fjord, where there are big icebergs around. The runway slopes down. It's only 6,000 feet long. We've got to land 11 hawks on this runway. Um, we landed there, and there was a sign that said, Welcome to Narsasuak, population 60. So <laughs> we just arrived with 22 people, and we stayed overnight. So that was a, yeah, a fair increase on the town's population. Uh, they took us out on a little fishing boat around the iceberg. It was an incredible experience and just um, fantastic. But the runway was so short, and we were show, so short of fuel to then get from there to Goose Bay that we couldn't afford to hold for the formation to do formation takeoff. We couldn't do a formation takeoff anyway because the runway was too short. So we had to get airborne to Singletons. Um, and while some were, half the formation was taxiing this way down the runway, the other half were getting airborne on the other half of the runway. So uh, real, real memories from, from that tour. Um, we spent about a week in Quebec, and uh, for the first time in a long time with our North American teams, uh, the Thunderbirds and the Blue Angels and also the Canadian Snowbirds. So great to go and work with those guys, um, and we got to fly their pilots in during our displays, and likewise, I flew with the Snowbirds. So when I trained in Canada, one of the, at the time, in 2008, Snowbird 4 had been on my course when I was training in Canada back in, in the early 2000s. So real nice synergy there. He flew in the back of my jet for a display and I flew in his aeroplane for a display. So really nice to go and share those experiences with other teams from around the world. Uh, perhaps the best memory from that trip was uh, the opportunity to display in New York. So we displayed in New York Harbour and got to get some brilliant shots flying around the Statue of Liberty. So that was my first year. Uh, very successful year. And um, you know, the, some memories from there are just... Uh, well, I could, talk about them for hours but I don't have the time 2009 
Second year, selected to be Red 7, where I got to do some of the extra stuff of flying towards another aeroplane and uh, doing some of the uh, even more dynamic stuff as part of the synchro pair. And then 27th of June, 2009, I think the grin on my face in the top left picture says it all, if you can see it. That was my boyhood dream of displaying in Biggin Hill. That was the day. So we didn't get to do it in 2008, my first year, because we were in America when the air show happened. But in 2009, I got to display in front of my home crowd at Biggin Hill. problem was is that as synchro, when I, I went out to the south and I had a visual point that I had to get to, but I got so interested, oh, there's my old school and there's this and that. I got distracted and, and then I messed up a manoeuvre. So the first one there wasn't brilliant, but the second one, the next day, was, uh, was brilliant. And it was what a feeling to go and actually, that, that day, having realised that in 1982, I want to be a Red Arrows pilot, I want to come and display here. You know, the icing on the cake was that I was actually doing it as part of the synchro pair as well. So a real memory for me. Um, this is called Ups and Downs. It's not uh, all good stuff. On the 23rd of March 2010, so coming up to nine years at the end of this week, um, all going swimmingly. So it's now my third year in the team. I'm the synchro leader. We're out in Greece on a training exercise, and this happens. So this is me with the blue smoke. <clears throat> uh, we've come in towards each other for a manoeuvre which was known as the opposition barrel roll. Uh, and I'll just point out some bits from here. So that is the tip of Red 7's tail fin. If you look at Red 7's tail plane, it's got a bit missing there. That's hit my wing, so that's just taken a little chunk out of my wing. But the tip of his tail plane, tail fin, sorry, has hit my canopy probably about 18 inches above my head. So it's hit, hit my canopy there. Uh, we were only at 100 feet when this happened, so we're pretty low. You can see from that picture that we're actually both descending. The last input I made was to push, so I know I'm going towards the ground. The canopy shattered, so a lot's happening. I'm quite disorientated, so I thought, I'm not staying here. So I pulled the yellow and black handle and uh, ejected. So I used the ejection seat, and that's me there. Unfortunately, I got knocked out. The force of the ejection, now the the way an ejection seat works is that it's like a big gun. The seat itself is like a bullet, and then the bullet gets shot out the top of the aircraft, pulls a few cords, which fires rockets, and gets the seat away. I'll, I'll show a picture of the seat in a minute. You then go from cockpit atmosphere which is no wind to at this point we're doing just under 400 miles an hour so I go from zero to 400 miles an hour my head get hit back into the into the seat itself I'm wearing a helmet but it's got um, quite badly dented and I get knocked out and I'm actually unconscious in the chute there and you can see for those who like parachutes that that chute's not fully inflated so I hit the ground at a fair rate of knots whilst unconscious so I couldn't carry out a proper parachute landing drill um, unfortunately that was the aftermath uh, and that's where I would have been had I not used the seat um, as it was, that's where I ended up, um, taken to a, a Greek hospital. Um, there's some quite funny stories around that. Again, I don't have a lot of time, but I will tell you, this guy in the orange high-vis jacket is, uh, was our engineering flight sergeant who came with me in the ambulance to the hospital. And we got there, there were about 30 paparazzi all crowding around the, uh, the trolley, and he, he kicked one square in the gentleman's area. And uh, <laughs> bearing in mind, I'm in a neck brace, I can't really move, but I could just out the corner of my eye see this photographer go down, and it was... Uh, that was a happy moment. <laughs> <laughs> so I landed, I landed very heavily and um, had quite bad injuries to my legs and uh, I'd also damaged my shoulder and, and various cuts and bruises. So um, I spent a number of weeks uh, in a... <laughs> a number of weeks in, a, uh, in a, very, a very funky wheelchair that the Royal Air Force Benevolent Fund had, uh, had loaned me. Um, and I managed to convince the doctors. Normally in the, in the military, if you, you get aeromedically vac- evacuated, so aeromedded, out of the theatre into the UK to get looked after. I convinced the doctors to aeromed me out of the UK into Cyprus so I could be with the team. So um, they'd never had that request before. 
Uh, here we go, there's the seat. Um, so, quick rundown of the seat. In here is the parachute. You're strapped into this harness, which is also it's the seat harness and the parachute harness. Various straps. This is actually a Mark 10 seat from a tornado, so it's got arm restraints as well. The Hawk doesn't have that, but it has leg restraints. So as you ride up the seat, as you ride up the rail in the seat, it pulls your legs in automatically so you don't damage your legs. Um, so all you do, pull this handle here. That triggers a load of gases, fires the big gun at the back. You get shot out of the canopy. As you ride up the canopy, you may have seen in some of the pictures I showed um, some squiggles on the, on the glass. That's actually explosive cord that explodes the canopy so that the seat can go through. Uh, as you ride up the rail, there's a cord at the back here that pulls um, the firing mechanism for these rockets. And then that fires the rockets, gives you a big oomph and sends you another 200 feet in the air. So this is what's known as a zero, zero seat. You can eject on the ground at zero height, zero speed, and you'll survive. It won't be comfortable, but you'll survive because of those rockets that will send you up. Some seats don't have that. For example, the Takano doesn't have the rockets. You can still eject, but you need at least 70 knots of forward speed because it doesn't have that extra oomph of the rocket. So that's called a zero, 70 seat. Anyway, that's an aside. So that's the seat, um, and I'm eternally grateful to Martin Baker. So that was my third year on the team, unfortunately, where um, it was all going swimmingly, six months of training synchro, and then it ended on uh, in, in split seconds, literally a split second. So, uh, but I made use of my time on the ground in hospital and, and various other places, and I organised uh, a charity visit um, for the Royal Air Force Benevolent Fund to say thank you for the, the wheelchair they've given me, but also having then realised how important those electric wheelchairs are for the charity WizKids. So we raised about £50,000 by riding Vespers from Land's End to Johnny Groats. Right, so that was... Uh, then I left, went and joined... Uh, went on promotion to um, the UK Military Flying Training System at Bristol. Came back as Red 10. Now, those tragic events in 2011 meant that the decision was made to fly the Red Arrows display as a seven-aircraft formation in 2012. So... Um, a seven aircraft display, but 2012 was quite a big year. It was Her Majesty's Diamond Jubilee, and it was also uh, the London Olympics. So for all high-profile fly pass, we got to fly as nine aircraft. So I flew as Red 9 over various places. In fact, there's some pictures there. I actually think Her Majesty got bored of us in the end. She must have seen us, I would imagine, probably ten times that year. So, um, yeah, but a, a great honour and a great privilege to have done that. Perhaps the highlight, 2012, was flying over the opening ceremony of the London 2012 Olympics, where uh, it's estimated that in that ceremony that was streamed around the world, they reckon about 1.4 billion people were watching. So no pressure, really. The biggest pressure for me, though, is that that's me on the left there with the blue smoke as Red 9. I actually had the chief of the air staff in the back seat as well. So <laughs> that was the biggest pressure. I don't think he knew that a, uh, a squad leader could sweat quite so much, but it was um, a good event nonetheless. <clears throat> uh, other things that were highlights from that year... This is where we won a, I won a Guinness World Record as part of a, part of a charity drive with Airability, a disabled um, aviators charity, where we were doing a round-the-world, non-stop round-the-world simulator flight, in a, it was a PA-28 aircraft, where each person would do a leg. And they asked me if I'd do the leg from, I mentioned Narsasa to Goose Bay in the Hawk. They said, oh, you've done that in the Hawk. Can you do it in the PA-28? I said, yeah, sure. I think it was an hour 50 in the Hawk. It was six hours in this. <laughs> <clears throat> And they then said, oh, and by the way, we, we've auctioned off the other seat on eBay. Oh, right, so I'm going to get stuck in a box for six hours with someone I don't even know. Um, luckily, this guy, Barney, was a, a legend. Love rugby, love flying, and uh, it was good fun for six hours. Anyway, that's an aside. <clears throat> 2013, my best day at work ever. Massive Formula One fan, and uh, I got to race Lewis Hamilton um, in his Formula One car on the runway at RAF Scampton. And uh, that's me overtaking him. So... <laughs> Um, 
In fact, I've got this David Coulthard in the back seat as well. And uh, yeah, he was having a lot of fun as we overtook Lewis. End of 2013, I talked about these overseas tours. This was um, another tour we went on. So um, by this point, we've, we've been to America. Actually, when I joined the team, we, we went, went all the way to Malaysia as well. But this was a tour around the Middle East where we were just promoting some of those UK industries and starting to sow the seeds of this great campaign. Uh, so top left is uh, UAE. Top right is UAE as well. This is Doha, Qatar, bottom left. And that's the uh, first time the team displayed in Kuwait, down bottom right. Uh, 50th display season was in 2014. Um, there are so many things we did in the 50th display season, I haven't got time to cover them now. Uh, but personal highlight for me, uh, for those who follow air shows, it was also the two Lanks summer, where the Canadian Lancaster came over and, and toured with the Ballabrim Memorial flight. Now, another th- inspiration for me to join the Royal Air Force was my grandfather was a Lancaster pilot at, uh, on 49 Squadron up in Syreston. Um, so when that Canadian Lancaster came to the UK, it was going to land at Coningsby, and we had this grand plan of launching the Red Arrows, launching the Battle Memorial flight. We were all going to escort it in. But there was the, the mother of all storms appeared about half an hour before it was due to come in, and we were sat on the runway waiting to go. The Spitfires and Hurricanes and the Lancaster cancelled at Coningsby because it was, the weather was atrocious. Um, and then we looked at this weather thing, and well, this, this doesn't look right. We can't launch 10 aircraft into this to go and meet this Lancaster. So I was the sacrificial lamb. They sent me up on my own to go and see the Lancaster. And for, for me, flying in formation with the aircraft that my grandfather, my late grandfather flew um, was incredible. And these guys have just flown all the way from Iceland. They've done an eight-and-a-half-hour mission, I think. They're going to Coningsby. The weather's really atrocious. So I had to go and find a camouflaged aircraft at low level in Lincolnshire. It was great. <laughs> <clears throat> that was 2014. Lots of memories, but uh, I'll talk over a coffee later if there's time. Uh, 2015, definitely lasting memory. Uh, was the last formation with this. So I've been very lucky. I'd flown on the wing of this on around six or seven different occasions when I'd been in the formation. But definitely the most memorable for me was actually flying the chase aircraft. So this photo is taken from my aircraft. I'm buzzing around the formation with a photographer in the back seat. And they are, those pictures, those images are absolutely etched in my, in my memory from, from seeing it from that perspective. It's great on the wing and you get to see the size of the aeroplane, but to see it from above in that, in that shape is just truly, truly incredible. So a very good year for that. Um, a one-off. This was uh, a visit by the Indian Prime Minister Modi in 2015. And you can see there, that this was the first time, certainly, that I could find that the Red Arrows had ever flown colours other than red, white and blue. So um, the little backstory to this is, so I took this picture on the ground in Parliament Square because I was very nervous. We'd done a trial with this smoke up in Lincolnshire and it didn't look anything like the Indian flag, but we didn't have the luxury of another test flight. So we thought, well, we'll just go. We'll just see what it looks like. Luckily, the atmospherics with that cloud made it stand out in orange, white and green, which was perfect because it, it, had he seen it in Lincolnshire where it was sort of muddy brown and turquoise, it wouldn't have really gone down so well. Um, now, I said I had to be on the ground at every public display. That's, uh, that's, that is the, the nature of the reality. I have to be there. I can't, they can't perform without me. Fly pass is a different matter. You don't need anyone on the ground for a fly pass, but this was the Rugby World Cup final, so I insisted <laughs> just to make sure everything was safe that I needed to be on the ground to supervise. So uh, I got a seat. Just about there. Um, now, this is great. So, Twickenham, November 2015. Uh, that, that's looking east, that picture. So, Red One is flying due west at four o'clock in the afternoon. The sun is setting. He can't see a thing. He cannot see Twickenham. He's just trusting that little Game Boy Tom Tom thing. And he's flying along. He's like, well, I'm, I'm on time according to my Tom Tom. I've got no idea where Twickenham is. And then you can just see the remnants of the fireworks. Luckily, this Twickenham erupted into fireworks. So, he just flew at those. It was perfect. He got there on time. We had a two-second window to get there. If we were going to be any later than two seconds, 
They said, call it off and, and don't fly anywhere near us. But when they've closed Heathrow for that, it's quite a big deal. So, uh, yeah. And global television audience. Uh, right. 2016. I've got around three minutes, I think. 2016, we embarked on a, a really mammoth tour, this was. So, getting all the way to China and back, we had to stop. I talked about no air to air refueling capabilities. We had to stop 22 times for fuel on the way to China. But you make the most of it. You, you engage and you, and you perform in, in all those places. Um, some images from that uh, that. Disp- that Transit and the, the, uh, the tour itself. That's Karachi in Pakistan, top left. Back to Kuwait. This is flying with uh, Bahraini Hawks. Um, this was in the UAE. Like the camels in the background. Uh, and then we arrived in China. The first time, incidentally, that a British fast jet had been in China. And on the way, we stopped in Vietnam. It was the first time that a British fast jet had been in Vietnam. So uh, some brilliant opportunities during that tour. For those who know Singapore, that's Marina Bay Sands. And then this photo I particularly like. So that's uh, downtown Kuala Lumpur with the Petronas Towers. This shows that the, the team is very well respected around the world. So I spoke to the, the Malaysian equivalent of the Civil Aviation Authority. I said, hello, it's, uh, it's Mike Ling, I'm the supervisor with the hours. I'd like to get a photo of the team passing the Petronas Towers. Yeah, sure, what do you want? I said, well, you know, can, I, can I have the airspace? Yeah, sure, have it for half an hour. Okay, what's the minimum height? We don't have one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. So we got half an hour of flying around. So you just imagine another team from around the world asking if they could fly past Big Ben. And you just wouldn't even dream of it. But this is how the team is well respected. And we were very fortunate to have been given that opportunity. And that's us getting the picture. That's me up there. Again, a Royal Air Force photographer in my back seat. So a viral picture. It truly was a team effort. There were 100 of us went on this tour. We took 12 40-year-old aeroplanes, 32,000 kilometres, stopped 42 times on the way and back. We visited 18 countries. Now, the important part of that slide, I think, is that not only did we reach a billion people through various media channels, but I don't know how they worked this out, but they've, they've said that linked to that tour were £8 billion worth of Asia-Pacific trade deals. So it wasn't just air shows. You know, we, were, we were having meetings with, with Chinese airlines and introducing our Rolls-Royce partners to Chinese airlines. So it was all geared around that hook. The Red Arrows being a hook of getting people talking to other people, and that worked very, very well, as you can see from the slide. Uh, so that was 2016, highlight was the tour. 2017, where the Malaysians had said, yeah, sure, do what you want. The Jordanians went one further. They gave us the whole of their airspace for two hours and said, yeah, you can fly a little around the whole country. So, and including Petra, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Site, they said you can fly down Petra. So if any of you visited Petra, it's in a very tight valley, very tight indeed. So we've got a formation of nine jets down there. Again, I'm taking, I'm within the camera aircraft, so flying, pointing towards a big mountain, trying to get the right shot past the... I think it's called Tomb of the Kings, and then pulling up at the last minute so I don't fly into a mountain. So a real challenge to get what I think is an incredible photo. Uh, so that was the end of my time as Red 10, around the world, uh, well, to China and back, and then for the, uh, the 2017 tour to, the, uh, to do another tour of the Middle East. And then uh, definitely the highlight, without doubt, of 2018, having gone back as Red 3, was the opportunity to fly over Buckingham Palace for the... Royal Air Force's 100th anniversary fly past back in July. So we were behind a train of, 90, I think it was 94 other aircraft in the end, 94 aircraft ahead of us, and we were the back nine. Of course, we couldn't go at the front because they wouldn't see anything with the smoke that we'd left behind. So we had to go at the back. Um, and in front of us, and if you saw the footage, uh, there were 22 typhoons. Uh, for us, it was 001. For the crowd, of course, 100. And um, it was just amazing. Just to, from coasting in on the east coast of East Anglia, where there were thousands, not hundreds, there were thousands of people parked up. With, and every flyover between East Anglia and Buckingham Palace 
had scores and scores of cars with hundreds of thousands of people all the way along the route. So amazing um, that the support for the Royal Air Force was so, so great that day. And you can just see the number of people along the Mall in front of Buckingham Palace. Right. One minute. A few statistics. So there we go. Ten display seasons. I went overseas five times with the team on, on major tours. Uh, 699 displays. I'm going to recount that. It's got to be 700. Um, that's, that's as, uh, I'm proud of this stat, 46 countries. So I've landed one of these aircraft in 46 countries, which you know, for a single-engine, 40-year-old aeroplane, to, to say that's how reliable it is, it's got me all the way to China and back. Incidentally, the, the jet I flew to China had been with the Red Arrows since 1979. It had done no other job. It had been with the Red Arrows, getting beasted as it does since 1979. And just goes to show that the technology is incredible. Um, you wouldn't think 25% of my life was, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm younger than I look. Um, <laughs> That's how many times I flew, 2,585 flights. And uh, in the time I was on the team, they had 29 different serial aircraft, 1,800 flying hours with the Reds, and I worked with 30 different wingmen. So there's some statistics, but I'm, I'm toying with which has been my absolute highlight, is whether being on the front of Vanity Fair <laughs> or getting three blue pizza badges. I just don't know. It's... Anyway, that's uh, my time on the team. Um, unfortunately, I mentioned earlier, I do only have two weeks left in the Royal Air Force. I actually finished working in the Royal Air Force back before Christmas, and um, my next venture is joining this team called the Blades, part of 2XL Aviation, and uh, this is the sales pitch. We are the world's only aerobatic airline, so the idea is that as all X-Red Arrows pilots, all four pilots X-Red Arrows, we can put people in the front of these aeroplanes and go and do some formation manoeuvres very, very akin to the, the Red Arrows manoeuvres that you see. So if you would like to have a look at theblades.com, you can come flying with us, and uh, we will show you a very, very good time. But that's my new job, so I'm now a commercial pilot, I'm sad, sad to say, and my time, 21 years in the Royal Air Force, is complete. Ladies and gentlemen, I've done an hour, sorry, that was 10 minutes longer than I should have done. So, rattled through, I'd like to take any questions. From across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favorite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.